it is getting, which is one of the challenges that play, faces a lot of us. I'd like to tell you a story to start with. Thanks, Alan. A jar. A management consultant was working with a team of um, high flyers in a company, and he brought a jar, and in the jar, he put some big stones. I'm sorry those look like eggs, but they're intended to be stones. It's just, it's just that my, my internet had run out of capacity on stones. But if you imagine those are stones, so he put stones in the jar and filled it. And he said to the, um, these were all high flyers, he said, is the jar full? So they all looked a bit sheepish and said, yeah, it's full. So he then took a bag of small stones and tipped those in as well. And then he said to the, uh, these high flyers, is it full? And now by now they're getting a bit more dubious and a bit more sort of wondering, hmm, maybe, well, they said maybe. So he then took a bag of sand and poured the sand into the spaces left between the big stones and the little stones. And he then finally poured in some water until it was right at the brim of the, uh, of the jar. And he said to the guys there, he said, well, what's the message or what's the story in this particular illustration? And one bright spark, and I really love this guy, he said, well, he said, to me, he said, it doesn't matter how busy your schedule is, you can always squeeze one more thing in. <laughs> I love this guy. He'd have worked for me, I'm sure. But he was, but I, but he, and the guy said, actually, no. He said, the, the story of this, or the, the, the fundamental of this, is if you don't put the big stones in first, you'll never get them in. And what struck me, thanks, Alan, that's all I've got on the pictorial side tonight. Um, but, but the thing that really struck me was, what are the big stones in our Christian experience? What are those things which are so fundamental to our Christian experience that they are unique in terms of lifestyle and in terms of the many multiplicities of faith structures that are around? What are those four, and I've got four, I thought four, just about we can remember four things, four key stones that are crucial to our Christian experience. One, the first one, I think, is that big stone of conviction. What is conviction? Conviction something to do with that nudging of the Holy Spirit, that direct confrontation of our lives with the Savior of the world. It said we are yielding our lives to Jesus Christ. And we can't come to a knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ as Lord without some sort of nudging of the Spirit of God towards us accepting him as Lord and Savior. Now, it may be quite simple. It may be for you, it may be like, I know I'm not a gardener. Um, I did have the, the reputation of, of having some plants sent by mail order once and planting them upside down in our garden. But such is my knowledge of gardening. But I, I do know that apparently buds do develop into flowers. And sometimes I think that's the way people come to know the Lord. Particularly people who've been brought up in a Christian environment. Sometimes there is that very gentle opening and that very gentle realisation that Christ is Lord and, and I want to give my life to him. For other people it's much more dramatic. It's as if as a confrontation there's a... Um, I won't say a road crash, but there's a, there's a real confrontation that actually brings people to a point of decision. Sometimes life's tragedy. 
Sometimes something goes wrong, dramatically wrong, and that triggers a person to think about, is there more to life than just what I've got at present? Um, for some, it's a, it's a fear of what's going to happen in the future. Uh, Old-fashioned preaching, going back 50 years, used to dangle people over the pit of hell. And for some people, that was a very real way by which they came to know the Lord. We tend to much more concentrate now on the love of Christ. But the reality of judgment is true still. So depending how you come, there's always something which drives us or leads us or guides us to a knowledge of Christ. So there's the first one, is the big stone of conviction. But then I, I thought there's a big stone of actually salvation or coming to faith. However you express it, whatever sort of language you use, there's that stone which is so fundamental is actually coming to a point of acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord. And without that, our Christian faith or our Christian experience is of limited effect because there's that reality of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, I've had to learn, I'm not a good learner actually, but I've had to learn that people express faith in different ways. I was at a... Uh, uh, some of you know I work with an ex-offenders charity. Um, and I was at Thanksgiving service at one of our projects in, um, in the northwest. Uh, northwest? Northeast, actually. North Yorkshire. Northeast? Miles, that's about right. Anyway, Yorkshire. Um, part of Yorkshire. My geography's not great either. But it's, a, it's north. North. It's as good as my gardening. But we had this Thanksgiving service, and, and one of the, the girls there, a very trendy sort of 30-year-old, you know, looking really sort of modern and trendy and all the rest of it, she was giving a bit of a testimony. Uh, and it took me a while to sort of discern exactly what she was saying, but she said, actually, she didn't use the terms that we would have used in terms of coming to faith. But what she said was, a short while ago, her partner committed suicide. She took an overdose and jumped into the canal, and somebody who happened to see her pulled her out. She came to the center, and her life has changed, and she believes in this God. And as an evidence of that, the evidence she was came, which I thought was superb, she said, I actually now pay all my bills. And the children have come out of care. Um, she's cleaned up her life, but I thought, actually, the way in which people express faith is sometimes very different. And it's actually trying to discern what's the reality behind the words in terms of how people express where they've been. But somewhere there's a transformational element in our experience that only comes because we've, trans we've put our life in relationship with Christ. That sort of 180 degree, that reorientation of our, of our values, our behaviors, our structure, and our total dependence on Christ for the future. So there's a big stone of salvation. There's a big stone of coming to faith. Thirdly, there's a big stone of belonging. Belonging, fellowship, discipleship, growing, developing. Um, Acts 2.42, 2, the early church, it said, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which Edward was touching on this morning with the, the trail of crumbs, and to prayer. Teaching, fellowship, prayer, and the breaking of bread. But there's something about, in a fellowship environment, when we come to know the Lord, of learning to listen, um, and sometimes and bouncing, bouncing off each other in faith. 
And I think as we learn to live in faith, there's something about bouncing off each other, getting input from other people in terms of our lifestyle, in terms of those things which trouble us, those things which concern us, and sometimes the way in which we live as well. I've got a, there's a lovely expression we used to use when I was uh, working, working full-time. And it said, actually, when you're working with people, show how is much more important than know-how. And there's something about, in a fellowship group, in a home group, in an environment uh, of Christian togetherness, where show-how is much more crucial than know-how. How do you do this? How do you live? How do you, how do you reorientate your life so it's totally de dedicated to Christ? How do you cope with the difficulty? How do you cope with the dirty jokes in a, in a uh, working environment when you're the only Christian? All the things that come up, the fellowship environment's great for working those out, how to cope with it. The last big stone, I think, is this, is getting a vision from God of what he wants us to do, what he wants us to be, and what he wants us to do. So we've got a stone of conviction, a stone of salvation, our coming to faith, a stone of belonging, fellowship, discipling, but then there's a big lump that says, what does God want me to do? Here I am, happy young 21-year-old, life full of life and vibrancy, you know, fit as a fiddle and all the rest of it, um, which could be applied to us or could not be. But what does God want me to do? Where is my ministry? Where is my orientation? Where is, where is my purpose for what God is saying to me? So I want to look at four examples don't worry, I can demolish notes very quickly when I'm speaking, so don't worry if there's a lot of paper here. But um, I want to just look at four examples or pointers or signposts as to how we see, how we get a vision for God in our lives. And I'll give you some examples along the way about how that's happened or how that could happen. I'd like to read something from um, Dallas Willard. This is an interesting guy. Dallas Willard was a professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California. He was renowned for his writings on, I love this, Christian spiritual formation. Good stuff, isn't it, this? Christian spiritual formation. But he said it, this was really interesting. We should not think of ourselves, he's talking about destiny, our destiny in God. What does God want us to do? We should not think of ourselves as destined to be celestial bureaucrats involved eternally in celestial administrivia. That would be only slight, slightly better than being caught in an everlasting church service. <laughs> Don't know where he goes, but um, that was obviously his, his dimension of that. No, we should think of our destiny, I love this, as being absorbed in a tremendously creative team effort with unimaginably splendid leadership on an inconceivably vast plane of activity with ever more comprehensive cycles of productivity and employment. This is the eye hath not seen nor ear heard that lies in the prophetic vision of Isaiah 64. It's brilliant, isn't it? On, I love this, tremendously, unimaginably splendid leadership. Go back to your work tomorrow and say, I'm looking for unimaginably splendid leadership in this place <laughs> and see whether it's there or not. St. Francis of Assisi, who wrote rather earlier than Dallas Willard, said this, keep a clear eye towards life's end. Do not forget your purpose and destiny as God's creature. Whatever you are in his sight is what you are and nothing more. Good, isn't it, that? Whatever you are in his sight is what you are. Nothing more, nothing less. Remember that when you leave this earth, you can take with you nothing that you've received, fading symbols of honor, trappings of power, but only what you have given 
a full heart enriched by honest service, love, sacrifice and courage. It's challenging, isn't it? We take nothing with us other than a heart that God has touched. So four signposts, um, four indicators, four directions of how we get the vision of God. Signpost number one is Gideon. Gideon was a reluctant leader. Um, I want to read you just a bit of Judges chapter 6. The Israelites did, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters and hid, hidding mountain clefts, cake and strong, caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land, ruined the crops, did not spare a living thing, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came upon their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian was so impoverished, the Israelites, that, so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord, he sent them a prophet. And this is what the Lord said through the prophet. I delivered you from the hand of your oppressors. I delivered you from Egypt, but you've not listened to me. And the Israelites at that time, I, I suspect they were just totally frustrated with the fact that the God that they knew had given them a clear deliverance from Egypt, this same God, and somehow, and now they've rejected him, and the Midianites are just running roughshod over them. Terrible thing to be, isn't it? You've known the vision of God, you've known the, the deliverance of God, and here we are, under the oppression of Midian. And I think there's times, sometimes, when you hear the direct call of God, or the direct, the direct impress of God on your life, through a sense of frustration. We were in a Methodist church in um, Shropshire a few years ago, uh, and it was a great church. God was really moving. The minister was a young guy who was really spirit-filled. He was just moving in a dimension of God. Numbers of people were coming to know the Lord, and um, it was just an exciting place to be. One Sunday night, and there was about probably less than this here tonight, uh, one Sunday night uh, he'd been preaching on, on freedom, and said he just wanted to invite people who just needed a sense of freedom to come into the vestry. And a few of us prayed with them. And um, Pauline was in a wheelchair. Pauline had been in a wheelchair for 21 years. Uh, at the birth of a second son, something had gone dramatically wrong and left her uh, half paralyzed. And she wore calipers on both legs and could just about get round the house by staggering from one bit of furniture to another. And um, Pauline came in, and she said, I'd like prayer. So we prayed for her. And uh, a young guy, a guy who I'd known, and we'd been instrumental in, in coming to know the Lord, was a guy called Jack. And Jack was standing next to me as, as we were praying for Pauline, and um, he said, I think I should ask her to get out of the wheelchair. Now, Jack had been saved about three weeks. And I'm thinking, what do you do? So you're suddenly on the spot, aren't you? He said, I think I should get her, ask her to get out of the wheelchair. So I said, well, look, if, God, if you really sense that God's been saying that, you ask her to get out. <laughs> Thinking, Jack, 
And so he literally went to her and he held out his hands and said, I believe God's telling me to ask you to get out of this wheelchair. Now she could just about stagger around. So she got out of the wheelchair and began to walk around the church. And we prayed again and she began to walk around the church faster and faster. Six weeks later, that lady was playing rounders on a church weekend. Now that was the dimension of God that was at move in that church at that time. Now, unfortunately, the minister moved on and we got a real modernist minister who didn't believe in Jesus, didn't did it as Lord, didn't really believe in salvation. And we had a lot of young people in the church who were getting very confused. And there was no other evangelistic church in the... It was, it was probably about the size, probably smaller than Camden, actually. It was a village come town, really. And... Um, so it was very, very difficult. We had nothing. We had, there was no evangelistic work in, in the village. And after one Sunday night service, one of the ladies got me up against a pew and said, Malcolm, this cannot go on. What are you going to do about it? So you're sometimes confronted with what do you do? So on the basis of a call of God that was, was derived from frustration, we started a fellowship. And God just blessed and blessed. Now, that was nothing to do with us. That was God. And I think sometimes you've got a sense of frustration. Sometimes there's a sense that we, we, we're not happy with this. Something's not going right. I'm really frustrated. And God says, that's the call for you. Get on with it. And that, we saw that fellowship grow. We saw people come to know the Lord. But the thing we were absolutely 100% confident is that it was nothing to do with us. That was God at work. And I think there's times when that happens in your experience and you see God at work. Now, Gideon was there. Gideon was there. And it said, if you read Judges 6, he was, a fearful, he was the least of his family and his family was the, was the least in the clan and the clan was the least in Israel. He was not a major individual. He was one of the weak ones. Weak makes strong in the Saviour's love. It's a great song, that, actually, Sam. Weak, weak made strong. But Gideon was threshing corn in a, almost in a cave. And an angel came to him and said, you mighty man of strength and valor. I love this. Uh, he said, you, the Lord is with you, mighty, mighty warrior. And, of course, Gideon says, come on, you know me. And you'll know the story of, of Judges 6. A tremendous victory was brought, was brought about through Gideon responding to a call of God, even though the nation was under severe pressure and severe frustration. So, just one, one thing to remember. When Gideon brought the victory over the Midianites, do you remember he started with 32,000? 22,000 went home. He was left with 12,000. And he sent home 11,700 on one side. He's got 300 men left with pitchers, lights, and swords. But the thing that struck me when I was rereading this is when they, they smashed the pitchers and put the lights up, the word that they said was this. It's the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And there's something about a total declaration that it's God at work and it's God that does things, not us. So signpost number one is sometimes you get a calling, a sense of direction, a sense of fulfillment, a sense of what is God saying to me through frustration or just feeling a bit ground down. Signpost number two. 
The hungry prayer meeting was in operation. Once a month, Monday night, we have a hungry prayer meeting. And it was in full swing. And people were worshipping, they were praying. I'm sure they were sharing some scripture. It was all very, very exciting. And it was a new church, relatively new church. And there were some, there were some influential people there, including one who'd been brought up with Herod. And they were worshipping. And the scripture says this, while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said... Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Do you know, there's a whole chapter of history. It's got encapsulated in three verses, isn't it? Just this thing about as they were, as they were worshipping and praying. The interesting thing to me was they already had a calling from God. There was, the calling was there... And it was a confirmation in this prayer meeting that he said, release Paul and Barnabas to the work to which they've already been called or to which they've been called. I was talking to a senior Baptist minister uh, three or four days ago. And um, he was sharing with me something about a vision that he sensed that he might, or a sort of area of work that he thought he might be going into. And as I listened... And as I, I, you know, asked questions and prompted a bit, and as I was listening, I thought, I, I said to him, actually, I believe that God's put a calling on your life for what you're sharing with me. And sometimes, as you listen to people, as you listen to people in a house group, as you listen to people in a fellowship, as you listen to people just in fellowship or talking together, there's a sense that behind what you're hearing is a call of God. And sometimes that comes in that way. Um, and it's, it becomes obvious. As you listen, it becomes obvious that God's placed a calling on, on their life uh, for, for a certain dimension of ministry. We have a, a, the, the hungry prayer meeting, and I was thinking, actually, who knows what God will reveal? We, it doesn't say in Acts 13 how the Holy Spirit spoke. It just says the Holy Spirit spoke. And I thought, actually, there's different ways in which the Holy Spirit can minister and can speak and some impress and can give through, through words or impression or, or uh, a, a, a straightforward word from God. But it was interesting to me. I thought it was as they were praying and worshipping. We were, we were in one, one particular fellowship and um, one of the ladies who was there, she'd become a Christian and was desperate to have a work of the Holy Spirit in her life. And she wasn't quite sure what that consisted of, but she was desperate to just know a real filling or a full a fulfillment of the Holy Spirit in her experience. And um, she told us one day, she said she was driving, listening to worship songs in the car. And as she was driving along, listening to these worship songs, she had to pull into the side of the road because she was in floods of tears. And as she got to the side of the road and just sat there, she was just full of the Holy Spirit. And it was as she was worshipping that God just filled them, filled her with a tremendous dimension of the Holy Spirit. My boss, when I worked in contracting, my boss was a lapsed Christian. And we'd been negotiating in Russia together. And we came back to um, Wilmslow when I was in Cheshire. And um, Dot met us at the station, 
and we'd, we'd been in Russia where, where it was under communist at the time and it was relatively repressive. Um, and she said to me, how, how did you get on with your Bibles? Because I'd taken a few Bibles out with me. And uh, I said, fine. And she said to Brian, my boss, how did you get on, Brian? Uh, and he just coloured up and said nothing. Um, and he said to me afterwards, he said, I, I've not taken a Bible with me because I've really not been going to church much, even though I've got a Christian background. But he said, he, and he went home to his wife and he said, we're going to start to read the Bible together. As they began to read the Bible together, at breakfast time, they were both baptised in the Holy Spirit. Now, how does God work? He works when we're open to him, when we're just open to seeing a great sense of God in our lives. There's something about an openness. Worship, to me, just opens the channel for God to move in different ways, in a new way in our experience. There's something about when we worship, when we lift up the name of Jesus, when we just exalt who he is, there's something that opens our, our, our hearts to God's spirit. I better motor on. The signpost number three is this, Joshua. I love Joshua. It's one of my favourite books in uh, not only just the New Testament, the Old Testament, get it right, but the whole of Scripture. It's one of my favourite books. Joshua 3, early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, you're to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you'll know which way to go, since you've never been this way before. Keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits, three, probably about 1,500, 2,000 yards between you and the Ark. And then Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I'll begin to exalt you in the, lies, uh, in the eyes of all Israel. When you reach the edge of the water, of Jordan's water, go and stand in the river, waiting for God to move. And there's something here about consecrating our lives. We want to get a vision for God. We want to see what God's got for us. There's something here. Oh, excuse me. There's something here about consecrating ourselves, getting rid of the dross that is in our lives. If we want to see a real direction of God, if we want to see a real flow of God, if we just want to see <clears throat> a real direction of God for us, there's something about clearing out the dross. Get rid of the rubbish. Um, but to make, our, make sure our lives are clean, we've got rid of, sort of the, some of the, the disputes, our behaviours, seeking to live in godly ways. <clears throat> This, this uh, chapter, uh, Joshua 3, talks about keeping a distance. And there's something about our, our casualness in relation to God. I think one of, the weak, one of the strengths of the movement over the last 20 years of worship has been a, a much more open and close relationship with God. One of the downsides, I be, believe, is that we've lost something of the, of the sight of the majesty and the sovereignty of God. And there's a balance between keeping a distance between the Ark of the Covenant as it moves out, a holy respect for who God is, along with a, a fellowship of worship with the Son who is our Saviour. And there's a balance there. Countless times in Joshua's life, he was told, be strong and courageous. 
It's just, it's a hallmark in Joshua that God has to keep reminding him, I'm with you. I'm here. I'm right beside you. Be strong and courageous. I think this is where Theresa May may have been reading Joshua, actually. She's got be stable, a strong and stable government. But Joshua was just under, be strong, the Lord is with you. I'd take my first MD's job in Telford. Telford was a ha- an area of high unemployment. Uh, when I was there, it was 33, 35% male unemployment. And um, I'd taken... I was put in charge of a company there with about 500, four to 500 men and um, a few ladies as well. It was an engineering company. And um, it was one of those situations where it was basically bankrupt. The bailiffs were in nearly every week. We were on fairly friendly terms with the bailiffs. We were, all, we were under restraint with the revenue. We were under restraint with the national insurance. Virtually everything that um, we had was owing to somebody, and um, I'd felt that God had put me in this position. I'd done it for about a year, and it seemed to be getting harder and harder and harder. So we took a week's holiday. We were, we were, we were going to a fortnight's holiday, actually. I was, I was just going to the airport, and we were going to Ibiza, <coughs> of all places, but we did go to Ibiza and, um, with the kids. And while we were driving to the airport... Uh, my deputy MD overtook me and he stopped me. He said, oh, I said, we've got a bit of an incident. I said, oh, right, what's happened? He said, we've got a big tank farm under construction in Liverpool docks. Uh, there was a big wind last night, which I said, yeah, I knew about that. He said, they're nearly all blown down. If you imagine 80, 90 metre diameter tanks, and it just looked like somebody would corkscrewed them. I couldn't believe it. So I went on holiday and... Um, I thought, this is just so hard. It's getting really difficult. And you start, to, you start to, t- to question, has God put you in the right place? Are you doing the right thing? Are you doing the right job? Has God put you in the right place? And it was a real challenge. And about halfway through the holiday, um, I was reading then something I'd, I did for quite a few years. I was reading through the Bible in a year. And as I was reading this through the Bible in a year, one verse struck out to me. You know, sometimes you you read scripture and it says, if it's 3D, it just stands out. There's something that just hits you. And as I was reading uh, 2 Corinthians 8, I came across this. Here's my judgment about what's best for you in this matter. Last year, you you were the first not only to give, but also have the desire to do so. And this is the verse that struck me. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. And I thought, wow, that's God. So on the strength of that, still with a bankrupt company, still under restraint, we sold the house, we moved 60 miles down to be with a factory. And it was very much as if our feet was in the water's edge. Just as Joshua was told of God, he said, get to the water's edge. When you're at the water's edge, there's no way back. (laughs) You are there. And very much at that time, we just knew a work of God. Every lunchtime, I used to have a mile circuit and walked around praying for God to bring this business into deliverance. And it it prospered. Um, And the Lord, Lord really honored it. The Lord honoured that business, and we took over quite a few other businesses, and it became, uh, for a while, a darling of the stock exchange. But that was not me, that was God. 
You know, you look at what has happened, you look at your own life and you say, that's not me, I'm not that like that. This is God at work. And I think when you're seeking God's guidance, one of the areas is consecrate ourselves, listen to a directive stance of leadership. Occasionally leaders will get a real steer for what is the right place for us to be in, where we're to go. The, it's following the impetus of the Spirit. I was reading some stuff recently on the Lewis Revival, the Welsh Revival, and John Wesley's Revival. If ever you've got a spare hour or two, read some of this stuff about the revivals when there was just a, a sovereign presence of God at work. The Lewis Revival, they just, they said they, they just saw things happening. The Welsh Revival was the same, where there was just a total conversion and transformation towards God. As one of the songs was, Here, here is Love, Vast as the Ocean, swept the Welsh valleys with literally thousands of people coming to know the Lord in that time. Follow the anointing where the Spirit's resting. Last one, we're getting on. The last, um, oh, I've lost my notes. The last um, example, I think, which I'd like to share with you, is that one of Joshua of Caleb. Caleb is a super character. And I'll read it very quickly if I can find this. Caleb was 40 when he, when he spied out the promised land, came back with a fantastic, encouraging message with Joshua, and the two of them said, let's go in and take the land. And the ten you remember said, oh no, oh no, there's giants, it's all very difficult, it's giants, there's all sorts of people there, we will not be able to do it. We were like grasshoppers in their sight. They never asked them, this was their guess. We were like grasshoppers in their sight, and so we were in our own. And Caleb said, the Moses brought me back, and the fellow is right, and that Moses promised to me the land upon which your feet have walked will be yours. And this is the bit that hits me. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he's kept me alive for 45 years, so here I am today, 85 years old, as strong today as the Lord Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle as I was then. Give me the hill country. And that was Caleb. I love this man. He's 85, he's not tottering, he's not giving up, he's ready for the next generation, he's ready to go. He said, give me the hill country. And I was thinking about what it is, the difficult bits, the stuff that was in forested, it was the, the giants of Anak were there. You read one verse in Judges 1, 20, and it said, it's, it's just great, this one. Um, where is it? They gave Hebron to Caleb, and this is the summation of his victory, Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak. Full stop. That was it. Judges 1.20. Just one-liner in terms of the victory that he brought. But I was thinking about what are the hill country? What is my hill country? What do I find really difficult? What do you find really difficult? And if I was to ask you tonight, what's your hill country? Some of you will have said, I've, I've been promised that years ago. There's been a call on my life. There's a, been a, a promise on my life. There's been something which has been sitting there for years. And it's something which God wants me to conquer. And there's hill country ahead of us. And I know what mine is. Um, there's, there's something, and I won't share it with, with you tonight, but there's something which God has laid on my heart that we will see. And it's hill country. It's tough, and it's forested, and it's going to be hard to do. 
And it may be the same for you. God's put something on your mind, put something on your heart, invested something in your spirit. And you say, you may have been sitting with it for years, but it says it's time. It's time for that fulfillment of what God has promised years ago. I'm going to close with this. The prophetic word in Isaiah 41. As a sharp-toothed harrow, you will smooth out the mountains, turn those tough old hills into loamy soil. You'll open the rough ground to the weather, to the blasts of sun and wind and rain, but you will be confident and exuberant, expansive in the Holy One of Israel. There is freedom, there's victory, there's joy, because God's in control and God's, God's with it. So we've covered four things. Four big stones, conviction, salvation, fellowship, seeking the vision of God. Four signposts, Joshua, Gideon, Paul and Barnabas, Caleb. And four scriptural examples. These were just ordinary people. Gideon was an ordinary guy, weak and insignificant. Paul and Barnabas were just one of the series of leaders in Antioch. They were just one of about 10 or 12, and God just separated them out. Caleb stuck, sat on that vision of God for 45 years, and then it came to fruition, and he, and he took out the, the children of Anak. And there may be something in you that says, I've been sitting on something. There's, it's time for its fulfillment to come out and to see God work in the way that he's spoken to you years ago. I think one of the sadnesses or one of the tragedies of Christian experience is unfulfilled potential. A potential of God in terms of gifting, calling, vision, direction, just a spirit of anointing. And sometimes that just gets dissipated. Sometimes it just gets lost. And maybe if that's been in your experience, it's time to bring that back. It's time for a new openness in God to see God move once again. We're going to just sing one song, and then I've got, there's time for questions. So if, you want, if there's any questions, you just want to raise them, I think it's quite good after a message to have questions, because um, otherwise there's no opportunity. So we'll do that. We'll sing, sing one song. We, can we sing, um, was it not I Stand Amazed? Yeah, I Stand Amazed. Let's just stand and sing that, and then we'll see if there's any questions that um, we need to look at.